Is all creation groaning? Is it's a new creation coming? It is, and it's the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst. It is, it's a good that we remind ourselves of this. It is, wow. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? He's the Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He's David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of our blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Does the Father... Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Joel chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bibles this morning, you can find this passage in page 712. And as you're flipping there, we'd like to remind you that if you're visiting or if you just don't have a copy of the Bible, you're more than welcome to take one of these Pew Bibles home with you as our gift to you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Joel chapter 1, verse 15 verses. Hear the words of our Lord speaking to us today. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns, because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. 
pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. This is the word of the Lord. Better there? My, oh, there we go. There we go. All right. <laughs> Good morning. We are in a series on the minor prophets. And uh, yeah, just when you thought it couldn't get weirder, we, we get to talk about a locust plague this morning. Like, seriously? Seriously? Is that what we're going to do? Yes. We're going to talk about locust plagues this morning. That's great. But if you're new, maybe a little bit of background, a little bit of context about what we're doing. We are in a series on um, these short prophetic books called the Minor Prophets. They're not minor because um, they are less important. They have lots of major things to teach us, um, but they're minor because they're, they're shorter books of the Bible. And they're wrestling with this tension between God's justice and God's mercy. We see over and over again, God's justice compels him to bring judgment on his people because of the mess they're making of their lives and their world. And, and yet again, though, we see God's mercy on display, and there's this constant tension between God's justice. He must uphold justice and God's mercy. That's the kind of God he is. And so uh, we see that same kind of tension this morning in the book of the Joel. Is God just? Yes. Is God merciful? Yes. And we get to see that play out in this uh, beautiful minor prophet. So a little historical context here. I've got a little slide, I think, from the Bible Project up there. They've got some beautiful little (laughs) illustrations there. And uh, Joel doesn't tell us exactly when he was written. There are none of the kings that we would normally uh, use to establish a date for the book. There's no mention of the northern kingdom at all. Presumably, it has already gone into exile. There's no mention of Assyria and Babylon, the two arch enemies of Israel that we've been studying throughout this series. So it seems like we're past that period in Israel's history. The dispersion of the Jews among the nations is already mentioned. So it seems like both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have already gone into exile, and now God's people are back in the land. While Jerusalem and the temple are mentioned, there's no king. So it seems like we're in a post-exilic setting. After the exile in Babylon, God's people have returned to the land um, once the Persians came into power. And now we have the prophet Joel uh, reflecting on a message from the God from God in that 
period. And he's doing it reflecting on a lot of the other messages of the minor prophets. And so he doesn't mention any specific sins of Israel in this book. We don't get the whole litany of evil that Israel has committed because he's assuming you've read the rest of these prophets. And so you have all those scrolls up there on the screen that Joel is reflecting on and he's studying and he is uh, meditating on as he brings his message to us this morning. Joel grabs his contemporaries' attention with a disaster ripped right out of the headlines, a locust swarm that has devastated the land. And I didn't know a whole lot, I have to confess, didn't know a lot about locust swarms before uh, spending some time this week in the study. But apparently in a locust swarm, believe it or not, millions or even billions of locusts cover square Miles. Think about that. Square miles of territory, and they devastate absolutely everything in sight, wrecking an entire ecosystem. Every green thing for miles and miles and miles around. Without early detection and immediate destruction of the hatching eggs, locust swarms are still devastating countries even today. In fact, one just happened in 2020, impacting Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia, which should give you something of the scope of a locust swarm. Like when a locust swarm comes, it doesn't just devastate like one farmer's crop, like whole countries, you know, are wiped out and brought to utter devastation. It's a disaster of epic proportions, particularly if you're living in an agrarian culture where you can't just head out to Meyer and go pick up some food. You know, I mean, you are like the food is gone. There's no food for your animals. Uh, there's no food for anyone within miles and miles and miles and miles. It is absolutely devastating. Um, for us, this would be something like a stock market crash and bank run, like just devastating the entire economy. But not only are these devastating to the natural ecosystem, they're part of Israel's own history, right? Anybody remember uh, where locusts come up earlier in the story of the Bible? Anybody? Could any good Sunday school students out there? This is a full audience sort of question. Ooh, I, heard, I heard a little something from the pastor Mark here. We get that. <laughs> yeah, locusts come up in the Exodus story. If you remember, at that point, God is rescuing his people. He's saving them from Egypt. And so God smites their enemies with a locust plague that devastates the land of Egypt. Here's the problem. Right now, the locusts are coming against who? They're coming against God's people. And so the tables have turned. And so this is a fairly sobering moment for God's people. No longer on the, on the rescuing side of God's incredible power over nature. They are currently feeling God's judgment against them. And Joel takes this very concrete natural disaster to warn God's people about an even greater disaster for the enemies of God. And that disaster is the great day of the Lord. Mentioned five times in the book, like Zephaniah, it is the main theme of the book. It comes up over and over again. It marks the structure of the book. And the day of the Lord was the much-anticipated future day when God would judge all evil right and restore his people. And so a day of judgment and a day of restoration. And so my big idea uh, for the book of Joel is this. The day of the Lord is near, so turn to him and receive his blessings or turn away from him and receive his judgment. The day of the Lord is near, so we either get to turn to him 
or and receive his blessings, turn away from him and receive his judgment. And we learned three things about the day of the Lord. I'm going to unpack them and all similar to some of the other prophets. We're going to see that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. We're going to see second, the day of the Lord is a day that calls for repentance and the day of the Lord is a day of restoration. And so my aim is that we would take this opportunity this morning to return to the Lord, receive the blessings that he has for us. I think that's the invitation for us. So let's pray uh, that God might meet us this morning and then we might receive uh, the blessings that he has for us. Father, it's pretty easy to dismiss something like the day of the Lord as some distant abstraction that might have no bearing on our everyday lives. We are pretty preoccupied with the present. We all come with our cares and anxieties and distractions, the things that are on uh, our minds. And so it's hard to think of some great distant event when you're going to judge the world with perfect justice and bring your peace and um, yeah, your glory and your love to bear on the world. And so we need your help this morning uh, to keep the end in mind as we go about our everyday lives. Would you come by the power of your spirit? Would you bring this whole ancient minor prophet to life for us this morning? We pray uh, for our good and for your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. Now, I realize I've said that numerous times throughout this series, So, but if you're new, um, hopefully at this point, um, you recognize uh, that this is um, not that God is just an angry God of the Old Testament and he likes to smite people and judge people. And, um, you know, that's just the kind of God the Old Testament God is. Rather, I'm hoping that you see that God brings judgment because he's just, first of all, and because he loves his people and because he takes evil so seriously. In fact, God's judgment is simply an outworking of his love. He loves his people and his world too much to leave evil and injustice unchecked, right? God's judgment comes in response to the evil and injustice in the world. God will not tolerate it. You know, God will not allow the kind of destruction and bloodshed and violence that is so endemic to our world. He wants to do something about it because he, he loves us. And so we see that God takes action, and often that action is represented by the prophets, by their message that God is about to intervene decisively in all the chaos in the world around us. And that judgment is always good news for God's people. It's good news for the world God is going to bring. God is going to make all things right. Notice in verse 2 of Joel, if you're following along, and whenever we're doing a big book of the Bible like this where we're cranking through three chapters here in a very short period of time, you get, want to be flipping through your Bible. I'm not going to cover every verse. So you, if you have your Bible out in front of you on your phone or in, you can kind of track in, fill in any of the blanks that I'm missing. Uh, but notice in verse 2 of chapter 1, that Joel addresses the elders and inhabitants of the land, right? There's no king in this um, address here. So this is probably a post-exilic audience. After the, after the exile, God is speaking to the people who are left in the land, the people and the elders. And he asks them if anything this tragic has happened in all their days or the days of their fathers. It's a rhetorical question, right? This is the worst tragedy in two generations, something they're going to be passing on for generations and generations to come. Just like some of our great-grandparents were talking about the Great Depression or something and how that impacted people, even to this day, still struggling, who have gone through great tragedies like that. Verse 4 uh, sums up the tragedy very succinctly. 
What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left and destroyed, left the destroying locust has eaten. So the bottom line is the locusts have eaten everything. And in a day where you can't run out to the grocery store and pick up food, this is a disaster. There are going to be food shortages all around. Even the domestic animals and wildlife are going to be impacted because there is absolutely nothing to eat. We see in verse 5 that those who enjoy wine will have none to drown their sorrows. Even the vines, even the grapes have been absolutely destroyed. In verse 6 through 7, the locusts are likened to an invading army like the Assyrians or Babylonians that devastated God's people in previous generations. And in verse 8, Joel finally calls for public limit, a public expression of grief and sorrow and heartache at the devastation that has come. The priests mourn, the farmers weep and wail, and verse 12 sums things up poetically. Gladness dries up for the children of man. Now there's a sobering poetic line. Gladness dries up for the children of man. In verse 13, Joel calls the priest to put on sackcloth, to lament, to call for a public fast, to gather the elders and all the people to cry out to God because this is an emergency. It's a, it's a disaster. And Joel tells us in verse 15 that this disaster is only a foreshadowing of a greater crisis, the day of the Lord that is coming. This current locust plague points to an even greater judgment sketched out in chapter 2, 1 through 11, as the ultimate day of the Lord. And so when we turn over to chapter 2, and we read those first 11 verses, at first glance, it looks like another locust plague. Uh, But verse 2 tells us that this one is like one that has never, like one never been before, nor will be again throughout the years of all generations. And so the locust plague that they experienced in chapter 1 is a foreshadowing of a greater locust plague that is coming, an apocalyptic locust plague that is coming on the world. This mysterious swarming army of locusts we learn in verse 11 of chapter 2 is the army of the Lord, right? The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Uh, Verse 25 makes it even more explicit. Um, that the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, all of these swarming locusts are my great army, which I sent among you. And so we have a vision of a locust plague. Bear with me here. This is a complicated book to follow. And then you have, which is foreshadowing an even greater plague that is going to come at the end of time. And what's confusing is that the locusts are often used to describe armies, and armies are oft, sometimes used to describe locusts. So, so Ray Dillard says in his commentary, I have the quote up there, armies are commonly likened to locusts in the Old Testament, right? Swarms of people you know, attacking you, Judges 6 or Isaiah 33 or Jeremiah 46, but here the order is reversed, and the locusts take on the character of an invading army. And so you have these two scenes an actual literal locust plague, and then you have this apocalyptic locust plague coming at the end of time that Joel is talking about. And Revelation 9, 7 through 11 actually picks up this language. So I told you this is going to get weird. It just got weirder, okay? If you get into Revelation chapter 7, you get some really crazy locusts. 
and things get very interesting in Revelation 7, or Revelation 9 and 7 through 11. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he is called Apollyon. And so you have... In Joel, just as long as you're tracking, a locust plague. And then you have this foreshadowing of the day of the Lord, this great locust plague that's going to come on the world um, in this distant future. Crazy, scary stuff. But Joel points to this natural disaster as a way of breaking through our coping strategies and getting our attention, right? They help us think about our ultimate destiny and where, where the world is going. So crises like 9-11, uh, the financial crisis and the Great Recession 2008, um, the whole COVID outbreak, um, you pick your crisis, maybe a personal crisis in your own life, divorce, unemployment, death of a loved one, cancer are incredibly painful but also clarifying, Right? In, in, in experiences like this, tragedies like this, right, we, we have to think. We have to face reality as it is. We're not allowed to just kind of go on living our lives in their normal ways. They have a way of reminding us of what's most important. Uh, C.S. Lewis says it this way, uh, classically, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So what Joel is trying to do, he's trying to rouse his contemporaries to remind them that they have to deal with God, and he's a perfectly just God. And not only are they going to have to deal with the crisis that's in front of them, but there is a God who is going to judge the world with perfect justice, and the tragedy that they've just experienced is nothing compared to what is coming for the world in the future. And so Joel's trying to grab his contemporaries if you were just kind of shake them out of your complacency. Now, we have quite a few coping strategies for dealing with pain in our modern culture. So, so we're well prepared for this, right? You know what I'm talking, right? We, we self-medicate with food or alcohol or drugs. Uh, Joel has already mentioned in his passage, right, the wine is going to run out. So for those of you guys that are going to run to the bottle when things get bad, right, even the bottle is ultimately going to fail you, right? We lose ourselves in mindless entertainment, the infinity scroll or escape into a good book, Um, we've got lots of strategies to escape the pain and the heartache and the suffering in our world. And being that we have lots of money and much affluence, there are lots of ways to run from our pain and the suffering uh, around us. But not all of those strategies are great. Some of them are just trying to shut out the world around us or escape from the pain and suffering and to not deal with the real issues, the ultimate issues with which Joel wants to present us this morning, the day of the Lord, God's ultimate coming. Instead of running from God to all of those things, Joel wants us to run to God and receive the blessings that only he can offer. And so in chapter 2, if you're still following along, starting in verse 12, we see one of the great transitions in 
our book here, we move from judgment in chapter 1 and 2, uh, both the locust plague that has happened, this future locust plague, uh, and there's a call to repentance. So if you are picking it up there in chapter 2, verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Notice the transition here in verse 12. Yet even now, no matter how dire the circumstances, there's always an opportunity to return to the Lord. If you are here and you are alive, there is always an opportunity to return to the Lord. It's important for us to remember that repentance is simply returning to God. It's running to God. I think there's a common stereotype of repentance that, you know, you got caught and, you know, now you have to apologize. It's like you get brought to the principal's office and you're in trouble. And so you're going to have to go through all the motions of apology, right? We see this all the time in our world today, right? Some athlete or movie star makes a mistake and they have to jump on TV and they have to go through all the motions of, you know, trying to talk how sorry they are and, you know, a lot of externals to try and express their penance for whatever stupid thing they did and all. And that's so different from what Joel has. Nothing could be further from his mind, right? Joel is saying, return to the Lord with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments, right? He's not looking for all the externals. And in that culture, man, so many ways that they would tear their garments, they'd wear sackcloth. I mean, they're actually much better, much, much healthier emotionally than we were, right? Weeping, wailing, loudly was a part of their culture, and they had all these external ways of actually doing that, which, which could be helpful. But Joel is saying, the externals don't matter. God is after the heart. Rend your, rend your hearts, not your garments. God, God is after our hearts in repentance. He wants us to return to him. And while all that grief and sorrow and mourning might not have been as meaningful in those ancient times. Boy, if you see a grown man today, particularly of a Northern European background crying, you're like, man, that, that dude is like wrecked. Like, and so, you know, a little bit of grief, a little bit of mourning, a little bit of sorrow um, really gets at our hearts, right? And that's what Joel wants. He, he wants us to return to God, not just outwardly, but, but, but for us to express all of the heartfelt grief that comes with breaking God's heart and breaking the ways in which he has designed for us to live. And this call to repentance is met with a beautiful assurance of pardon, right? Because, you know, admitting that we're wrong is half of repentance, but it's only half of repentance. The, the actual acknowledging wrongdoing, it's the actual running to God that's the other part, the important part of repentance that sometimes we miss, right? So often I think in repentance, we're like, yeah, I did something wrong. I need to acknowledge it. I need to apologize. But the actual turning to the Lord, actually returning to him, receiving his grace and his pardon and his forgiveness and his mercy and strength to actually live the life that he calls for us, that is what we're going to see as this text unfold. Because Joel gives us a little bit more of God's heart. This beautiful assurance of pardon from Exodus 34, 6 through 7. This is the prophet's favorite passage to quote 
uh, in the whole Bible. I love it. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. We've already seen Jonah and Nahum quote it, and Joel reminds God's people what he's like. God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster, right? He loves it when he loves to welcome the wayward home. The heart of God comes out probably most clearly in Jesus' parable. I say probably. The classic story, right, of what repentance looks like is the prodigal son story in Luke 15. Uh, If you're not familiar with that, right, there's this son who demands half of his inheritance from the father before his father's even dead, and he runs off to a far country and squanders it in wild living, drinking, partying, and prostitutes, and then finally comes to the end of himself. And he, there's this beautiful line where it says that he comes to his senses, and then he realizes, man, even my father's like servants have it better than I do right here. And he just decides, man, I'm going to go home and apologize to my father. I'm just going to try and get like a part-time, like a temp job at my dad's business here. Man, and while he's a long way off, his father sees him, and man, he's trying to mumble some apologies, and his father just welcomes him in, gives him this massive hug, throws the robe on him, kills the fattened calf, and it's a massive party, right? That is what repentance is all about. It's about coming home, back into the arms of our Father, into the party, into the celebration. And that is the welcoming heart of God. That's what Joel wants to communicate to God's people, even now, right? No matter what has gone, even after all the breach of God's covenant, even after all the idolatry, even after all the evil and injustice, God's like, I'm here to welcome you home. And this assurance of pardon is grounded in Right, the very character of God. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. And of course, that very character of God comes to its expression for us and is secured for us once and for all on the cross. Right? The the reason God can be both just and merciful is because Jesus took the punishment for our sins right on the cross so we can go free, so that we can be welcomed back into the family, so we can enjoy the party that God is putting on. That's the the beauty of the book of Joel. There's a message of judgment, but there's always, the door is always open to repentance, even now to come, return to God and experience his love and his grace and his mercy and his kindness. So Joel's call to repentance is also followed by a by a call to corporate repentance, right? In verse 15 through 17, they're saying, blow a trumpet, you know, not to call people into battle, but to call them to repentance. The priests are to gather, right? Everyone's to gather together, and everyone's to cry out to God for his grace. This text gives us one of the most important texts on repentance in the whole Bible, right? It helps us remember, remind us that repentance is about returning to God. It reminds us that God wants our hearts, not our lip service, not externals. Uh, Eric Tully, uh, one of the commentators, summed this up so well, I thought I would quote it for you guys. He said, it's easy to look sorry or sound sorry for what we've done. It's even easy to feel sorry, especially when we're caught or facing unpleasant circumstances. But what is needed is a kind of personal defeat. With brutal honesty, we reckon with a godly sorrow that cuts through excuses all the way to the heart And we determine with God's help to be done with that sin once and for all. That's the the message that Joel has 
for us, not some kind of superficial repentance, but a true repentance that would bring us home to God and committed to a life of change and living for him. This call to repentance is another major turning point in the book between God's judgment and God's, rest, God's restoration. In fact, repentance is the uh, prerequisite for enjoying the restoration that God has for his people. And so in verse 18, we pick up here this story of restoration for people that are repentant, that have come to God with all their hearts. We see this beautiful turning point in the book in verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. I'll no more make you a reproach among the nations. I'll remove the northerner far from you and drive them into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He's poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rains as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And the conclusion here in verse 25, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So there's this beautiful message of restoration. And it unfolds like the judgment in several phases. There's this first restoration, right, where where God is going to come with his passionate love and his pity for his people. And he's going to restore all that was lost, the grain, the wine, the oil. God's going to restore it all. He's going to bring rains on the ground and and all of the prosperity that they've been missing out on. God's going to bring it all back. God's going to restore all the damage done by all these years of the locust plagues. And most importantly, God is going to be there in their midst. But, but Joel, like with the message of judgment, he also has a message for the future. Not only is God going to restore right, the country from its state of crisis and tragedy, God has an even greater future in mind for them. That's what you have to love about the minor prophets. Their messages of judgment are huge, but their messages of grace and mercy are just as massive. And so, so you've got to try and wrap your mind around what God is doing here. If you're following along, uh, read with me in verse 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days... I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. As the Lord has said, among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Just as God poured out abundant rain to heal the parched land, 
to bring back all the produce, to feed all of the people and all of the animals and all the beasts. Um, this promise is going to be that God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Right? This promise is already anticipated by Moses all the way back in Numbers 11.29, where he said, Would that all God's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Throughout the Old Testament, God had already poured out his spirit on craftsmen, on prophets, on judges, on kings, and others for special work that God had for them to do. But starting with the prophets, there is an expectation of a greater outpouring of God's spirit. In Isaiah 44, 3, for instance, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Or Ezekiel 36, 27, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules in the new covenant. Or Ezekiel 39, 29, and I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord. And Joel offers us a classic statement about what this new outpouring of the Spirit will look like. It will not be given to select people. We poured out on all flesh, all people, and particularly, Joel includes sons and daughters, old men and young men, even male and female servants. This outpouring will be one such that one commentator calls it a complete sociological overhaul from the patriarchal and hierarchical ancient world to this new era of God's spirit where God's people will all be working together shoulder to shoulder in his great kingdom work. Sons and daughters, men and women, slaves, right? And those that are in positions of authority. This prophecy certainly anticipates Paul's words in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean all gender distinctions are dismissed or that there aren't roles in the home or the church, but that the work of God will require all of God's spirit-filled people without exception. Everyone included, everyone a part of the work that God is doing in the world. Peter quotes Joel 2 in his famous sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2. And so Joel has so many connections to the New Testament. I feel like I'm only going to scratch the surface this morning. But Acts 2 is so central to the work of God in the world. We've got we've to talk about it. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all the disciples praying in the upper room. They've been waiting for God's Spirit to come down, right? Jesus was crucified. Jesus rose again. Jesus says, wait. Wait till the Spirit comes. When he comes, you will have power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In Acts 2, the Spirit comes in power. They take to the streets with the message. A massive crowd forms, and Peter preaches that Joel 2 is being fulfilled in the birth of the church. In this new era, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is our era. This is our church. We're a part of the promises of Joel, God's spirit being poured out, the church born, and the message going out to the nations. And today, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. Anyone can get in on this, right? There are no ethnic or socioeconomic distinctions. There are no gender distinctions that would 
prohibit you from being a part of what God is doing in the world. Uh, I love one of my uh, favorite pastors at Ray Ortland at his church has a, has a mantra, um, which I thought is appropriate as we think about this text. Um, it's called the Emmanuel mantra, and I've, I've got it up on the screen there, and it goes like this. I'm a complete idiot. Step one, my future is incredibly bright, and anyone can get in on this. I love the simplicity of that statement because what Joel wants us to know is all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. You could be a complete idiot. In fact, we all are, right? Because, you know, when God looks at us, he's going to go, oh, look at how impressive Mike is, man. Such a good Bible scholar, you know, such a great father and dad. It's like, no, this guy's an idiot, you know, most of the time. And he needs a lot of help and a lot of grace in his life. And none of us before God are that impressive, right? If, we're, if our imperfect obedience were compared to the perfect holiness of God, right, at the end of the day, we don't bring a whole lot to the table, right? But our future is incredibly bright. Why is our future incredibly bright? Because our future is tied to Jesus, the perfect one, who came and lived the perfect life we could never live and died the death we deserve and rose again to give us new life in him. And he's pouring out his spirit so that we can be just like him, right? Our future is incredibly bright, as bright as the message here in Joel. And anyone can get in on this, right? If it's a gift, if it's grace, any of you could get on this. Even an idiot like me could get in on this kind of message, right? You don't have to come with all your stuff together, man. Anybody can get us all who call on the name of the Lord can be saved. And while we Protestants uh, sometimes put a lot of talk about the the priesthood of all believers, right? We're all there to minister that grace to other people. Um, You know, Ray Dillard says we should talk about the, the prophethood of all believers, right? We get to, now that we've experienced that message, we get to take that message to the streets, right? We get to bring God's word to the people around us. We get to be messengers of God, of his beautiful message of grace and mercy, of his spirit being poured out, of his work in the world. We get to be a part of that, Whether you are a man or a woman, whether you're a son or a daughter, whether you are the CEO of some company or whether you're out sweeping the streets or picking up garbage, everybody gets in on this opportunity. We are God's spirit-filled people, a part of his work. And I don't know anyone who doesn't want more of the spirit of God in their lives, more of the fruit of the spirit operative in their lives, more of God's love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and patience and, and, and on and on with, with that beautiful list of character qualities that the Holy Spirit brings. I don't know anybody who doesn't want more of the spiritual gifts in their lives. They are actually able to use the gifts that God's given them to bless the church and be a part of God's doing in the world. That's what Joel is saying, right? We're, we're our inheritance are the gifts of the Spirit, the, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what's to characterize this community of people. That's why our future is so incredibly bright. God doesn't promise any other institutions or any other nations for that sake, any other countries, uh, that kind of future. But as Christians, we have an incredibly bright future. And anybody, anybody can get in on it. And that's just chapter two. And I feel like at this point, man, holy cow, we still have another chapter to go through. And so I'm going to pick up the pace here a little bit. 
In chapter 3, Joel speaks of restoration, again, even, even more distant future. And so when you're in the prophets, there are all these little time horizons. There's the present, the Joel's ancient Near Eastern context. There's this horizon of what Jesus is going to do when he pours out his spirit on the church in Pentecost and the world is never. Then there are these other time horizons further out where God is going to judge the world with perfect judgment. And that's what we see in chapter 3, 1 through 16. Verses 1 through 3, that judgment is announced. In verses 4 through 8, Tyre, Sidon, and Philistia are singled out. In verse 19, it's Egypt and Edom, and they're all summoned to a final epic battle. Um, where the Lord roars and the heavens and the earth shake, but we learn that God will be a refuge and stronghold for his people. So we see in verse 16 of chapter 3, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Judgment is coming on the nations who have turned away from God, but there's refuge for God's people. God also promises a complete restoration for his people, not just of their own lives, but of their entire world that they're living in. It's of cosmic proportions impacting everything in the land. So in verse 17, we pick up the story this way. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never pass, never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. And the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water from the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, Edom a desolate wilderness, and Edom a des- and des- for violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in the land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, I will be avenged, for the Lord dwells. In Zion. Much of the imagery here in this final scene, where you have the hills dripping with sweet wine and everything being restored and renewed, comes from uh, the vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 47. It comes from Zechariah's vision, Zechariah 13 and 14. And that vision is picked up again by John in Revelation 22 1 through 5. So, just like the judgment foreshadows some of the judgment coming in Revelation 9 of these crazy mutant locusts, (laughs) so also the blessings mirror what's going to happen in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves are of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. As Christians, we are called to live in light of that day of the Lord, painted so vividly by the prophets. A day when God's justice will be satisfied and all evil swept away. A day when the mountains will drip sweet wine, where the river of life will flow from the house of the Lord with healing for the nations. This is the happy ending to the story. This is our future hope, church. That's where we're going. That's the destination that Joel is laying out for us. We may be complete idiots, but our future 
is incredibly bright in Christ, and the Holy Spirit will settle for nothing short of making us more and more like him and bringing us ultimately home to this new creation. Uh, Let me pray even this morning that God would be doing that here and in our midst and working and moving through his spirit. Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the prophet Joel, uh, this picturesque, picturesque message of judgment juxtaposed to this beautiful message of our future as Christians, a future filled with your spirit working in us, right? A future in which the world is transformed, where all the brokenness and pain and futility and frustration are eradicated, and we are in a relationship with you once again in a new heavens and new earth. Uh, Father, would those realities comfort us this morning, God? Would they renew us this morning? And uh, God, where we need to repent, we need to run home to you, where we need to turn to you for that beautiful hope that you offer, the strength that we need. Um, God, would that happen? God, would your spirit would be moving and active in our hearts, bringing the encouragement we need, uh, the challenge we need, the wake up we need, uh, the extra energy we need to live out this Christian life as you've called us to live. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.